Well, we could turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 and really consider the prayer that Paul has for the church in Ephesus from verse 16 onwards. But we could take the section from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is perhaps the most wonderful summary of the gospel of grace that we possess. Its grand theme is the work of the triune God in saving his people in Christ by grace alone, together with the implications that has for our lives. And we see that astonishing salvation opened up for us even in the opening section of the letter that we read. Just take verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's the note that opens Ephesians and it's the note that runs right through it. But Paul isn't outlining the glory of salvation in a abstract way. He's, he's writing a, a letter to flesh and blood, men and women, boys and girls. And so as he unfolds the, the wonders of salvation, he continually connects it to their lives. Salvation isn't a detached thing that happens up here. It happens in the heart. And so the Ephesians Verse 13, there are those who heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Paul is outlining the, the riches of salvation to a people who already possess that salvation in their own lives. And we see here in, in chapter 1 that as Paul outlines that the wonders of the grace of God for these Ephesian believers, that he just naturally moves on to prayer for them. And that's what we have in the section we're going to co concentrate on, verses 15 to 23, Paul's first prayer for these Ephesians. And as we see Paul move from the glories of theology directly to prayer, that poses a question for us. How, how naturally do we move to pray for one another? Does our theology inspire us to get on our knees and pray for each other? Because one of the great marks of the early church was Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The early church was a praying church. And the question for us is, do we have that great mark of being a praying people? Do we have an eagerness to pray with one another and for one another? Well, perhaps one of the hindrances to that spirit is we just often don't know how to pray for one another. But Paul's example here, this inspired prayer, takes away that difficulty. 
because Paul shows us how we can best pray for one another. And that will fuel, I hope, our prayers for one another. So we'll, we'll look at verses 15 to the end of the chapter under three headings. Who Paul prays for, verses 15 and 16. What Paul prays for, verses 17 to 19. And then Paul's great encouragement to pray, verse 20 to the end. Who Paul prays for, what Paul prays for, and Paul's great encouragement to pray. First then, who Paul prays for. And the first and obvious thing is just that Paul prays for the Ephesians. This is a congregation that Paul served for three years, as we're told in Acts 20. It's a congregation, as we're told in Acts 19, that Paul has devoted many hours to teaching. And this place that Paul has served and taught in was a difficult place to be a Christian. There was satanic opposition to the gospel in Ephesus. Many in Ephesus were devoted to what we would call the occult. Acts 19.19 19 records of the converts in Ephesus that a number of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burnt them in the sight of all. It's a, a city given to the occult and it's a city also given to idolatry. You might remember the incident in Acts 19 where the silversmiths incited a, a riot because their trade in idols was being damaged by Paul's preaching. In Acts 19.34, for two hours they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul is praying for believers he has taught and served who live in an idolatrous city given to the occult, opposed to the gospel. But despite these challenges, the, the Ephesian believers that Paul is praying for have a, a living and vital Christian testimony. Paul says in verse 15, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints. And faith and love are two of the great Christian graces. Two marks that someone genuinely possesses the glorious salvation that Paul has outlined. Faith that renounces any hope and trust in ourselves and places its confidence only in Jesus Christ. And flowing from that faith, love to the brothers and sisters who have that same faith in common in Christ Jesus. Now, how does Paul respond to these Ephesians living this life of faith and love in a, a difficult city? Well, the first thing he does is to give thanks for them. Verse 16, his response is, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And, and well, Paul should be thankful for these believers, living Christian lives of great faithfulness as they do in an unfaithful, deeply challenging city. And this calls us to reflect on two things. The first is, are we thankful for one another as Paul was thankful for the Ephesians? 
And do we tell one another that we are thankful for one another? You know, Paul has no difficulty telling these brothers, I don't cease to give thanks for you. It might not be very English to do that, but it's very scriptural to give thanks and to encourage one another in living out lives of faith and love in a difficult city. But the second challenge, I think, is are we living lives that would inspire others to be thankful for us? Our day is difficult, our day is challenging, but it's arguably less challenging than first century Ephesus. And yet the saints there showed great faith and love. Is that same faith and love shining out of our lives in 21st century Sheffield? So that is who Paul is praying for. These Ephesian believers living out lives of faith and love in a difficult city, inspiring Paul to great thankfulness. But what does Paul move on to pray for these individuals? Well, we see that in verses 17 to 19, and that's the second point, what Paul prays for. Now, here are people with pressing needs. They are at risk of persecution. They are marginalized in society. And perhaps when the Ephesians read that Paul prays for them, and he remembers them in their prayers, they expect that to be the focus of what Paul is asking God to do, to deal with the immediate trials, tribulations, difficulties that they are experiencing. And of course, there's nothing wrong with praying for our immediate trials, difficulties, and tribulations. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's nothing too small, nothing too immediate, nothing too insignificant to bring to God in prayer. But, and this is very instructive, instead of praying for these seeming needs of the Ephesian believers, Paul prays for something quite different. He prays for their greatest, deepest underlying need, and that is that they would behold their God. And an illustration of what Paul is doing here is a doctor. You go to the doctor with certain symptoms, thinking you know what the issue is and what needs to be fixed. But then the doctor diagnoses the real root issue and he deals with that, not the symptoms that are being presented. And Paul does exactly that here. The Ephesians have many real pressing immediate needs, many legitimate prayer concerns and burdens living life in the city that they do. But Paul, instead of dealing with the surface things, goes to the very heart of the matter. He goes to the best prayer that he could pray for them. And that prayer simply is that by God's grace, they would know their God better. And let's study Paul's prayer in a bit more detail. He begins, verse 17, by praying to God the Father. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Father of glory. And there's just a beautiful sense of who it is we come to in prayer in that little phrase, the Father of glory. 
There's a wonderful intimacy in, in prayer where we're coming to our Father, our Father who has redeemed us in his Son. But in prayer, there's also a, a profound recognition that our Father, with whom we are so familiar, remains the Lord of glory. And Paul goes on to ask the Father in verse 17 through 18a, that the Ephesians would know <clears throat> more of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in order that they might know God and see him more clearly. Now, the Ephesians are believers. They already have the Spirit. We read in verse 13 that they have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. But Paul wants them to experience a, a deeper work of the Spirit in their lives, to know more of his indwelling power. Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever had the Spirit without measure. And we and the Ephesians all need more of the Spirit in our lives. And the Holy Spirit does much in the lives of believers. He gives gifts to believers. The gift of teaching, the gift of hospitality, and so on. He, he convicts us of our sin, John 16, 8. He gives us assurance, Romans 8, 16. But Paul here prays for the, the Spirit's work in a very specific way. He prays that the Ephesians might know the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Paul is praying that the Ephesians would have the spirit deepening their knowledge of God, opening the eyes of their hearts in the revelation of the knowledge of God. And Paul, in, in this prayer that the Spirit would work in the Ephesians, is, is drawing on Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior to come. And it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And Paul is praying that that same spirit which rested on Christ, which gave Christ wisdom and understanding, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, would dwell in the hearts of the Ephesians so that they might know their God better. And that is the great work of the Spirit, to deepen the Christian's knowledge of God. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. John 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. So do we desire this enlightening work of the Spirit that Paul is praying the Ephesians would know? Do we desire to have our eyes opened to behold our God? Because if we do, there is a glorious 
promise that God truly will give us his spirit. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, why does this matter? Why is it important that we know our God, that the Spirit enables us to know God better? Well, Daniel had it right so long ago. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. To know God, which is eternal life itself, is the great anchor in the storms of life. How did Moses manage to lead Israel out of Egypt? By faith he left Egypt, Hebrews 11, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Seeing his God, knowing his God, by faith beholding his God, made Moses strong. Paul's prayer here, that the Spirit would show the Ephesians their God is one of the most practical prayers that Paul could pray for these Ephesians. But as well as this general knowledge of God, there's three specific things Paul prays that the Ephesians would know through the ministry of the Spirit. We have them in verses 18b through 19. Paul wants the Holy Spirit to show these believers the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul prays that the Spirit would show first, then, these Ephesian believers the hope to which they had been called. Being called into the Christian life is not an end in itself. The Christian life is about a destination. It's about where we are heading to. Our hope, our desire is not for this life. For if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Our hope is in the resurrection to come. A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That is the end of our calling. And Paul wants the Ephesians to know that hope. And why is it important? Well, once the Ephesians were hopeless. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now they have hope. And Paul wants them to have that lodged in their hearts. And why is it important for the Ephesians to know the hope of their calling? Because hope is part of our spiritual armor. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Hope is also the anchor that holds us secure in the storms of life. Hebrews 6.9, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtains. Hope is a spur to holiness. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
doctrine is so eminently practical. Knowing God, knowing specifically the destination he is calling us to, is the great help we need in fighting the good fight of faith. And Paul wants the Ephesians to know this. The second thing Paul wants the Ephesians to know is how precious they are in God's sight. The Ephesians are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. They are God's possession. Marginalized and persecuted as they are, they are beloved of the great God of heaven and earth. Their great need isn't strategies in terms of how to engage and deal with society. Their great need is to know that whatever the world thinks, God loves them and has chosen them as his treasure. And do we as a small group in Sheffield believe this? Do we know that however hostile the world is, We are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And there are few more encouraging things that we can pray for one another. That day by day, whatever trials we face, we would have fixed in our minds that we are God's glorious inheritance. And the third thing Paul specifically wants the Ephesians to know is the great power of their God the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Living in a society that had rejected them, the Ephesians were probably feeling very powerless. Ephesus was ruled by the mighty Roman Empire. But if the Ephesian believers beheld their God, they would realize that a power so great that it is immeasurable was for them. And what a privilege to be able to live life knowing that the maker of heaven and earth is for us. What a confidence that can give us in all the shifting sands of life for Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, what a prayer this is from Paul. That the Ephesians would have the blessed ministry of the Spirit, opening their eyes to see in deeper ways who God is. And I'm sure that while, especially in this moment as a church, you have many needs, the one thing that would do you the greatest good is to have that deepening work of the Spirit, leading you on to know your God better, to know more surely the hope of your calling, to know how loved by God you are, and to know the power of God for you. Knowing these things, so many other troubles and concerns would find their solutions. So that's who Paul prays for. That's what Paul prays for them. Finally, Paul's great encouragement to pray, verses 20 to 23. Paul has just prayed that the Ephesians would know the power of their God. But what does the power of God look like? 
Well, Paul goes on to give a, a vivid illustration of the power of God and explain how it is now being exercised for the church. And that is, as we go through them, a great encouragement for us to pray. First, Paul tells us where to see the greatness of God's power. Verse 20, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What is the, the power that God has for the church? Well, verse 20, it is a power that is greater than death. The power that is toward us and for us is greater than sin, greater than the last enemy, greater than the physical laws of this universe. The power that is for us is the power that raised Christ from the dead. But how is this great power being exercised, this death-defying power well god's power is now being exercised in and through the risen and exalted jesus christ this raising of jesus from the dead this great display of god's power this exalting into heaven and sitting him at the father's right hand means verse 21 that jesus is now far above all rule authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one that is to come. And that means that the immeasurable power of God is now being exercised by God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection showed that power, and now as the resurrected Son of God, Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning over the universe. Rome is not the master in Ephesus. Jesus Christ is. And through the ages, whatever kingdoms rise, Whatever kingdoms fall, it is Jesus Christ who is far above all authority and rule. The great power of God is now exercised by the one who loved us and gave himself for us. You know, it can be hard at times to hold that truth by faith. The world cries to us that we are on the wrong side of history. In Britain, we see a nation that is forsaking its Christian foundations. Unbelief seems to reign, not Jesus Christ. But this passage tells us, whatever it looks like, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. But if this power of God is resurrection power, if it is now exercised by the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of this power? What is the purpose of Jesus' reign? How is he using the power that he has? Well, it is for the good of you and me. Verse 22, he put all things under his, under Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our sovereign God is exercising his immeasurable power toward us in Christ for this purpose, to bless his church. All things have been put under the feet of Christ that as head of the church he might care for it. And that's a wonderful picture of the church. Christ is the head. 
We are the body. We are organically connected to the immeasurable power, the resurrection power that there is in heaven. And as his body, with that organic connection to Christ, when we hurt, so to speak, he hurts. When we suffer, so to speak, he suffers. His power is therefore always being exercised for our good because we are one with him. And this great image of that, that oneness, that union we have with Christ is highlighted as Christ is said to fill his church. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ dwells in his church. He is the vine. We are the branches drawing our life for him. And again, with this power organically connected to us, filling us, what have we to fear and be cast down about in this world? Well, Paul says, I, I pray and I'm encouraged to pray for you because I know that the resurrection power of God is now being exercised by the Lord Jesus Christ for the good of his body, the church. And what an encouragement, surely, that is for us to pray for one another, knowing that God in Christ is for us, united to us and always at work for our good. So that's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And brothers and sisters, conscious of the power of our God in Christ, let us pray for one another more and more day by day that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him to become more deeply acquainted with our God, to have the wisdom of the revelation of the knowledge of him is the greatest good we can seek and the greatest prayer we can pray for one another.